Well, today I'm going to complete the message that I started last week, a parable of forgiveness. Next week we'll be back in Romans. This is the, the conclusion of the story of the, the prodigal son. And there is there's a little bit of the prodigal in all of us, is there not? We, we tend to go astray. Remember the, the meaning of the word prodigal from the Latin really prodigious, which means a recklessly wasteful or extravagant, foolishly, foolishly wasteful. Question then is, was he a rebellious son? Absolutely. So there, I have no problem with the contemporary meaning of the word prodigal, meaning rebellion. And that's the usual word that we assign, or usual meaning we assign to the word. But I want you to go to Luke chapter 15, if you're not already there, and notice the context which we pointed out last week of this parable. Luke chapter 15, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured. That that means speaking under their breath, complaining, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, in spite of the contempt, really, the disgust here of Israel's religious leaders toward Jesus, Jesus associated with those that they had deemed hopeless sinners. The Pharisees also hated the fact that crowds of these sinners were following after Jesus. And not, not did only did he not receive them, he actually had table fellowship with them. He ate with them. And that was unthinkable in their eyes. Another reason they, all, they hated Jesus was because he was always exposing their hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, 13, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Now, a hypocrite is the theater term. It means someone who is hiding behind a mask. They're pretending. They they are not what they really portray themselves to be. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. How? By burdening them down with all of these rules that were additions to the commandments. He says, for you neither go in yourself, neither do you suffer or allow those who are entering in. You hinder them from going in. Now, Trench, in his, in his commentary, he was a good Greek scholar, by the way, he says the first parable had a peculiar fitness to the spiritual rulers of the Jesus Jewish people. They were warned, rebuked, and charged continuously under this very title of shepherds because the first parable was about the shepherd and the lost sheep. Ezekiel 34, they'd be very familiar with that. Zechariah, or, yeah, Zechariah 11, they'd be very familiar with that and the warning to the shepherds. And yet now they are finding fault, he says, with Jesus for doing the very thing which they should have done, gone after lost sheep and have a heart for lost people. Jesus, we know, welcomed Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a a tax collector. Matter of fact, the Bible says he was the chief of the publicans, and he made a lot of money off it. So in Jewish society, tax collectors were despised. And even more than that, they were, they were regarded as blasphemers. They had betrayed the, the, the Jewish faith. But in Luke 
You know the story, so I'm not going to go back and repeat it. Jesus said unto him, that's Zacchaeus, this day is salvation come to this house. Jesus went to eat with him. For as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. They had written off people like Zacchaeus. They wanted nothing to do with them. But Zacchaeus, in that, in that story, repented. And he demonstrated the fruits of repentance by willing to restore full, fourfold what he had taken by overtaxing people, which really amounted to extortion. So he really was a criminal. You know, it's easier, the Bible says, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But in that story, the kingdom of God had come to the house of Zacchaeus, and he entered in. And really, what do you have there? You have is a picture of radical grace. Jesus reaching out to Zacchaeus and changing his life. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18 is another example of radical grace. In Luke 18, verse 9, it says that Jesus spoke this parable to them. Unto certain who had trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican. And you could just, you can hear the contempt in those words. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possessed. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. But, but he struck his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. So he was, he was crying out for forgiveness. In the Latin, when I was an altar boy, we used to do that in the Mass. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. So it was, it was an act of contrition. Jesus said this in Luke 18, 14. I tell you this. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself will be abased, and he that humbles himself will be exalted. So the publican's actions, his his humility in this story were indicative of true, genuine sorrow over his sin and repentance. So now back in Luke chapter 15, Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the others who faulted him for sitting down with sinners. And he does this by telling three parables. But there's something I I failed to point out last week. And look at verse 3 carefully. And he spoke this parable unto them, saying, and that's a demonstrative pronoun, this, and it's in the singular. How many parables does Jesus tell here? Three, but but it says right here, he spoke this parable unto them. Why a singular when there are three parables? Parables, because there is a common narrative here. 
a common thread running through all of them. In each parable, something is lost, something is found, and there is a great time of rejoicing when it's found. There's a lost sheep, one of a hundred, a lost coin, one of ten, and a lost son, one of two. These are, these are very simple stories, especially the first two, that, that really capture your attention. And the truth that Jesus was conveying in this singular parable could not be missed by the Pharisees. And it is especially true of the prodigal son. So he says in verse 4, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, and this is a touching touching imagery, he, he lays it upon his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, What? Rejoice. Rejoice with me. For I found my sheep which was lost. And this parable shows the heart of the shepherd for the sheep. And what psalm do you think of when you think of the shepherd and the sheep? Psalm 23. A good shepherd goes after the lost sheep. That's what they do. And a good shepherd searches for the lost sheep until he finds it. And likewise, God pursues sinners with the gospel. And what's the result? Verse 7. This is a key verse. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than ninety and nine just persons who do not need repentance. So then he goes on in verse 8. What woman having ten pieces of silver, if she loses one, does not light a candle and, and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors saying together, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace that I lost. I say unto you, Jesus says in verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So the search here for the lost coin shows persistence by the woman to find it because it represented really one-tenth of her savings. Jesus likewise pursues sinners. So let's look at the story as it unfolds here, the the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to look at the rebellion of the son. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, Dr. Kenneth Bailey has provided great insights into Luke's parables based on his decades of research and teaching in the Middle East culture. He was a scholar, he was a lecturer, he was, he was uh, an author in Middle Eastern New Testament studies. He knew at least four languages fluently. And he wrote, uh, wrote about these parables of Jesus, Jesus through Mideastern eyes, and, and uh, books like that. He wrote one in particular about the prodigal son. Now, I can't say that I agree 100%. With him, because sometimes these fellows go a little bit deeper than I think they need to go, and some things kind of creep into that. But nevertheless, he 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 does a remarkable story in the telling of this prodigal son narrative. But hand, in the handbook of biblical and social values by uh, Pilch and Molina, 
he says there are they write there are core values in the the greco-roman world the mediterranean world and the eastern culture in the bible as well honor is a claim to worth that is publicly acknowledged to have honor is to have publicly acknowledged worth in the sight of people shame as the opposite of honor is a claim to worth that is publicly denied and repudiated and honor they say is primarily a group value a man can dishonor his family he can dishonor his village his nation and inherited honor from a father to a son must be maintained and defended by the current generation very very important in eastern cultures pointed out last week that the western world our world is primarily a guilt culture the african tribal cultures are primarily fear cultures now bear in mind there is honor shame guilt in every culture to some extent but in the eastern cultures the greco-roman world the biblical world the world of the patriarchs it was an honor culture an honor shame culture you hear about honor killings in, in, in certain parts of the world because the, the father has been disgraced, the family has been disgraced. Children, of course, in the Bible, they're expected to what? Honor their parents. Israel was expected to honor God. And you know what? When Israel failed, what did God do? We'll say God punished him, yes. God shamed them. God chained them. Jeremiah 12, 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Once you begin running on an evil track, you're in for a long run. It's hard to get off. So here's what God says in verse 24. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the desert wind, the Sirocco's. This is your lot. The portion I have decreed for you declares the Lord. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in false gods, I will pull up your skirts over your face that your shame, your nakedness may be seen. See, it's an honor and shame culture. Now, in the division of the inheritance, according to the law of Moses, the eldest son received a double portion of the inheritance. But the inheritance was to be divided among the sons after the father, what? Died. So when the younger son demands his inheritance, and it's very strong in the Greek, he's saying, give it to me now, is what he's really saying. You know what he was, in effect, saying to his father? I wish you were dead already. He also showed no regard for the family's honor and wealth, which was tied to the land, to the land. In Eastern cultures, the saying is, the land does not belong to you, you belong to the land. Everything is tied to the land. And we know that from the Bible. The story of um, Naboth and Ahab in 1 Kings 21 Verse 1, it says, It came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which is in Jezreel, by the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I might have it for my garden of herbs, because it is near my house. I will give you a better vineyard than it. 
or, or something else that seems good to you. I'll, I will give you the worth of it in money. I will pay you more than it's worth. I want that vineyard because it's near my house. But, but what, what did Naboth say? 1 Kings 21.3 And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it to me that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. This, this was a family honor that was at stake. And he was really willing to die to defend that honor and eventually did. So, the son completely shames his father by asking for the inheritance. By in effect saying, I wish you were dead already. Now, in that culture, do you know what the father should have done? He should have raised his hand, taken the back of his hand, slapped his son across the face and say, get out of here. Cast him out. And the whole village would actually have a ceremony casting that son out and agreeing with the father because he had been publicly shamed by his son. But the father does something unthinkable. He grants the son's demand and he allows him to sell off his portion of the land. He treats the son kindly rather than punish him and shame him. He shows remarkable mercy, radical grace. And in a sense, Kenneth Bailey said this, he bears the son's shame before the villagers. He takes the shame upon himself by allowing his son to go. And I, I, I wrote this down as I was thinking about this. The father grants the freedom to the son to reject his love and goodness. And that tells me that Jesus, who, by the way, assumes the role of the father in this parable, grants the freedom to reject the love which he demonstrated on the cross for sinners. The lost son represents unsaved humanity. So here's, here's a little statement that I put. True love grants the freedom to reject love. You cannot compel somebody, twist their arms, beat them into loving you. True love grants the freedom to reject the love. The father loved his son dearly, but he granted him the freedom to reject that love and to go out on his own. And then we see the results of the son's rebellion, beginning in verse 13. Follow along. And not many days after the young son gathered all together. So what does that mean? Now, he didn't, he didn't have much, right? What was he after? Money, right? He wasn't going to take a, take a bunch of baggage along with him. So what he did was he took his inheritance, which was primarily in the land. And when it says in the text here that he... Uh, Gathered all together, it's actually a banking term. So what he did was really convert these things into land. Now, in order to get out of town, because he, he, he's being hated by the villagers right now. He's being hated by the father's servants right now. He's being hated by his elder brother right now. All he wanted to do was get out of Dodge quickly. So he probably sold it off at a loss. Not a loss, but pennies on a dollar. Or not, what, it wasn't, what, what it wasn't worth, he took. He took it, the money and he, and, he, and he left. And it says he went into a far country. Well, well, what is the far country picture? Far from God. 
He wanted to be far from his brother. He wanted to be far from his father, his family, his villagers. He just wanted to go. And there wasted his substance, that's his money, with riotous living. And notice verse 14. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want, and he went and joined himself to the citizens of that country. This is Gentile country. And he sent them into his fields to feed swine. And he would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave anything unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's hand have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I don't know who said the saying, where it originated, but it's true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Think about it. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So he goes into a far country, Gentile land. What's a good Jewish boy doing in Gentile territory? And guess what? He has no intention of ever coming back. He's going to make it big wherever he was. He wants no part of his small village, no part of his family, no part of his own country. He is running away for what he thinks will be a better, more exciting life. Man, I'm tired of this Christian stuff and these narrow-minded parents that I have. You know, I want bigger and better things. There's got to be more to life than this. This is his thinking. And it's the, the mindset of many young people, I would have you to know. But he goes there and he wastes his substance in wild living. He was sowing all of his wild oats. But need I remind you that those who sow the wind reap the whirlwind. And the whirlwind is a storm of consequences. Hosea 8, 7, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. He spent all, it says. That means he lost every single thing that he had. Every, all the money. He was destitute. But you know what? It gets worse than that, because he never planned for a mighty, severe famine in the land. So I put this down. And I draw your attention to it. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. He began to be in want. Great need is what the word means. It means that he fell far below the poverty line. He was in such desperate condition that the Bible says he glued himself. He attached himself. He joined himself to a Gentile, a man who had pigs. And he was assigned the task of feeding the swine in the fields. It's not a pig pen. These were free-roaming pigs. He was near, listen to me, he was near rock Bottom, if you know what that phrase means, you've hit the bottom, right? He didn't hit the bottom yet. He was near rock bottom. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, 
that shall he also reap. Sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Rock bottom came, went out of, out of such desperation, such gut-wrenching such gut pain in hunger, that he desired to eat the husks that the pigs were eating. Now, the husks, by Bible scholars, many of them say were carob pods, carob pods. And that's what the, pe- the pigs were eating out there in the field. Now, he wanted to eat those things. The problem was he didn't have a stomach that could digest them. So he was, in essence, worse off than the pigs. Welcome to the reality of the pit into which sin takes you. But the reality dawns on him in verse 17. Look at it. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. Now listen, I have to, I have to point this out to you. This is not an indication of repentance. He came to himself is not the language of repentance. It, it, it can precede repentance. It means that he knows that his life is a mess. He is starving. And, and his father's servants are, are better off than him. They have bread enough means they have, they have bread to spare. Now, many of the servants, and sometimes we think of these domestic slaves, but many of them had viable trades. And they were, they were able to actually save money. So the son is, I think now that you know, the light's beginning to dawn on him a little bit, and, and he's working out some things thoughts in his mind for a plan to go home and to better his situation. D.J. Harry says, the son was in a position. Now, this is significant. If you notice in verse 23, it talks about the son being dead, my son that was lost, and my son that was dead. The son was in a position of being dead to his father, but he was able to recognize his deadness. That's important. Because some people say, oh, lost people, you know, they're so dead in sin they, 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 they can't even recognize their deadness. The father has to regenerate them and make them alive. No, he was dead, but he was able to recognize his deadness. He came to his senses, the Bible says. Is sinful man able to recognize and admit his sinfulness? Yes, but that doesn't save him, right? He has to turn from his sin. He has to repent and receive the grace of God. So notice the rehearsal of the son here now. Verse 18. The the whole scene is before you. He's 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 a mess. He's starving. The pigs have it better off than him. So he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, this is his soliloquy. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no worthy, no more longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your higher servants. Now let me ask you a question. Maybe some of you young people haven't encountered this yet, but some of you older ones have. Can you ever remember a time when you did something in your youth which you knew would incur the wrath of your father, so you started rehearsing how you were going to tell him? (laughs) How am I going to tell him? What am I going to say about this dent in the front of the car door? So you you start your soliloquy, 
you start rehearsing all of your lines, you're laughing because you did it, right? You've done something like that. That's exactly what this son is doing. And his little speech has three points. First, I'm going to say, Dad, (laughs) I've sinned against heaven and against you. That sounds good, but even an admission like that might not be true sorrow of sin. It might be just stating the obvious or a little bit manipulation going on. Watch Exodus 10, 16. After the eighth plague of locusts, what does it take to convince somebody? Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Does that sound familiar? Exactly what the prodigal is saying. Now, therefore, forgive, I pray you, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Was Pharaoh repentant because he said, I have sinned against heaven and against you? No, absolutely not. No repentance. Just, just a manipulation there by Pharaoh. Another stall. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Father, make me as one of your hired servants, right? No, he, secondly, he said, what did he say? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Then third, make me as one of your hired servants. There's the speech, right? I've sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants, i.e., give me a job. I'll work out this mess on my own. I'll get myself out of this mess. I'll make money. I'll pay back. I'll recover what I lost. This is the line of thinking that is going on here. And all the way back, he's saying those three things. I mean, he's gonna, he has this down perfect when he gets back. But I want you to notice the radical grace of the Father. Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him. What was his father doing? Sitting on the porch, watching for his son every day? He had been gone a long time into this far country. Did he put the word out to his hired servants? Look, if, if you're out there in the fields and you see, you see my son coming back, you come and get me. We don't know. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him. His eye is on the sparrow, right? And I know he watches me. And had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Wow. Now, first of all, to leave the village as a patriarch and to to go to the son who is a distant way off is a shameful act in and of itself. Patriarchs, heads of households, Roman the Syrica, the Roman poet said, dignified men never do that. They never run. They're like Ben Cartwright. They're in their study. They're waiting for little Joe <laughs> to come back into the house and say, Dad, uh, you know, I lost the, 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 the horse. You know, with their rehearsed speech. Subordinates 
come to the superior. That's number one. He went to his son. I wonder what the villagers were thinking. What are you doing? Secondly, he ran. Which meant that in order to run, he had to lift up his garments up to above his knees and expose himself to some degree. Jeremiah 13, 26, I will pull up your skirts over your face that your shame and nakedness may be seen. He was exposing his nakedness according to the customs of the day. So he's running, he's, he's doing this, he's going to the sun. And then thirdly, he embraces the sun. Now last week I told you I would tell you this week when I believe the gospel entered the story. Here it is. Before the son has a chance to give his rehearsed speech. The father is not looking on anything that the son can do. He's not concerned about the one, the son, what the son you know, was going to say. He was doing something for his son. Number one, he is taking again the shame upon himself by leaving the home, going outside the village, and running to the sun. And instead of judgment, he bestows grace, mercy, and love. He welcomes the sun back home. Then notice the repentance of the sun. The prodigal then says, the first of two of the three things he is prepared to say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. And then secondly, he says, I am no more worthy to be called your son. But he does not give his father an order. He does not say, make me as one of your hired servants so I could work this out, so I can pay this off. He doesn't do that. Initially, he said, what? Give me my inheritance. He, he issued a demand to his father. Now no demands. And I think that the light of the gospel shown by the love of the father has revealed to the son that there is nothing he can do to repay for his wrongdoings. There is no work that he can do to make amends for his sinfulness. He just has to accept the father's love. And friends, that is salvation. Just accepting the love of the Father in repentance for your sins. Trusting Christ and Christ only. And then you see the remarkable demonstration of the grace in verse 22 and 3 that the Father bestows. The Father says to his servants, bring forth the best robe. Now the best robe was the Father's robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring here the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. So he asks his servants to go, go get my, my best robe. You know the one that's in my closet that I only wore three times a year on the special feast days? Bring that robe. It's all clean. It's, all, it's looking beautiful. It, it, put it on my son. My, my smelly, stinky, 
son. And then he says, get my ring. Now, this is not a, not a, a ring that you would wear like people ring to you know, show off their jewelry or whatever it is. It looks nice and everything. This was the signet ring of the father by which he transacted the family's business. He was giving to his son the authority to transact business and to sign documents, legal documents. The same one who had squandered his inheritance. It's like putting the, the, the fox in charge of the, the, you know, the, the chicken coop. And then he says, make sure you put some shoes on his feet. Slaves went shoeless. He's not a slave to sin any longer. Put some shoes on his feet. He is not to be treated like one of the villagers when he goes back home, whom the villagers would look on with contempt. He is my son now. He is redeemed. He is clothed in a robe, my robe, my robe of righteousness, if you're thinking along the lines of the gospel. He's a new creation. He is home. He is back home. Wow, that's calls for a celebration. Go get the fatted calf. We're going to kill the fatted calf. That calf was being reserved for a time of great celebration. What is there to celebrate? For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I think the emphasis really be, I found him. I went to him. And they began to be merry, like the good shepherd that found the lost sheep, the father found his lost son. And notice verse 7, or what is it, verse 7 again, in those two first two stories, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents, more than ninety and just persons who needs no repentance. Joy when the woman finds the lost coin. What a, what a story of radical grace. I hope it makes you think about the story of the prodigal son maybe differently than you ever thought about it before. You need to see it through the eyes of the Father. The older son, we don't have time, but man, he's really upset. He wouldn't go into the house. He's disturbed. He's angry. He's self-righteous. He's acrimonious. In saying, I, I've never transgressed against the Father's will. Oh, what son hasn't, right? And yet the Father hasn't haven't given me a party for me and my friends. He didn't give me so much as a goat, let alone the fatted calf. Listen, I'll say this to you. Kind of wrap this up. The Pharisees had that same sense of entitlement. They, they weren't like these other sinners. And the amazing thing in the story is the father again humbles himself. He leaves the party. 
He tells the band to stop playing. And he goes outside the house. He's shaming himself again. Now for the other son. He should have just said, you're going to pout like that? Just stay out there. As a matter of fact, just get out. Go further. Don't shame me on, on such a day of celebration. But he goes out to the son. He humbles himself again. And he says, it, it, it was meat. It was proper that we should make merry. And be glad, son, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. Did the Pharisees understand now that Jesus came to seek and to save? that which was lost.